Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators, addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution towards solutions. I'm Kaya Findlay, the Podcast and Communications Manager at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. Here at the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast, we're trying something new by launching a themed mini-series. Episodes in the mini-series will be shorter than regular episodes, and we'll seek to explore multiple angles in a common sustainability thread. Our first themed series is called Changing the Climate for Women, and it explores women's experiences in sustainability, energy, and facilities. In the first episode of this series, our intern, Sarah Barr, interviews Bonnie Benson, Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer at UCLA. So Sarah, people may have listened to your episode on a renewable fuel-powered arts community that we released in August, but just in case they haven't, can you briefly introduce yourself and then tell us what we're going to hear in this episode? Sure. So um, if you missed the episode we released in August, my name's Sarah Barr. I'm an intern from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I'm a first-year master's student studying environmental science and mass communication. So that's a little bit about me. And then this episode, like you mentioned, features Bonnie Benson, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer at UCLA. And she shares a lot of her personal experiences in the workplace dealing with microaggressions, things of that nature, and then relates those experiences to broader themes of being a woman working in sustainability in an increasingly diverse workforce. Um, So topics she touches on are mentorship, advancement, getting into the boardroom, and more. So I think Bonnie shares some powerful stories and powerful insights in this interview, and especially for me as a young woman entering the sustainability field, it was really great to get some of those insights and hear the experiences of another woman. So as a young woman yourself about to enter the workforce, what did you learn from this episode and how did it make you feel about your future and the women in the sustainability field? I guess to start, I, I wasn't really aware that there were still things I didn't know about entering the workforce as a woman and hearing Bonnie's experiences and also Kayla Dawson will be featuring her episode next month, her experience as well. Listening to them made me aware of these issues that still exist for women in the workplace that I wasn't aware were still problems. So it has sort of prepared me for what's to come and given me a better idea of how I can handle these situations when they arise with with maturity in a way that's productive for everyone involved. So I think Bonnie shares some powerful stories and powerful insights in this interview. And you have another interview with a woman, Kayla Dawson, coming up. We'll be releasing that next month. And it she shares some equally powerful stories. So with these stories, what do you hope listeners will glean from this episode and from those to come? I guess for, for other women listening to this episode, I hope that they benefit from it in the same way that I did. So I sort of learned about a lot of issues that are are still problems for women entering the workforce, especially in more technical like science areas. And for men, well, I guess men and women 
both, but mainly men. I would say I hope that it makes them more aware of these issues that still exist under the surface. I think they go unnoticed by a lot of people, and my hope would just be that it raises awareness that some of these issues are still problems that that need to be addressed. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sarah, and we look forward to listening to this first episode in the series on women in the sustainability sector. Thanks, Kai. I hope everyone enjoys it. Well, Bonnie, I want to start by welcoming you to the show. We're really glad you could join today for this interview. Yes, thank you so much. Um, I'm really happy to be here. It's an important topic. Well, first of all, could you just uh, give a little bit of background on your current role and how you're involved in sustainability? Currently in my role, I am uh, the Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer at UCLA, um, working across the entire portfolio, sustainability portfolio for the campus and trying to bring together the stakeholders and build strategy and resources and and management tactics, uh, change management tactics to help us advance these sustainability goals across this large uh, university, a community of 80,000 people, um, a daily population. So um, in a very motivated state. So it's quite fun. So I'll just start off by asking you, what have you noticed about the roles men and women play in the workplace? Have you noticed any differences? So, you know, one of the things that I've experienced quite a bit or observed quite a bit is that women really play a huge facilitation role in the workplace. So they facilitate conversations, they facilitate meetings, but that that facilitation role is undervalued. But the reality is, is that you can't achieve some of these more complex projects without a facilitator or or really successfully integrate change management into your organization. Um, and so that's something that I've observed in terms of a skill that isn't really clearly recognized or if it is, is grossly undervalued in the workplace. And, and so I think that's one way that women are undervalued. It's, it's an undervalued skill that is essential to advancing projects change management, you know, building buy-in, recruiting stakeholders. And I think in the early days of this field, the women outranked the men. It's interesting because that started that way, you know, it's starting to shift a little bit, but it started that way because the, the biggest part of the role that a sustainability officer plays is this facilitation. It's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a merging of um, business development, stakeholder management, change management, and really, all of those things require a lot of facilitation. Um, so, so that's something that I'm definitely seeing. You know, I, I've observed um, from my own experience and observing others that that facilitation role, you know, oftentimes, you know, those positions are undervalued. Do you find that that's sort of a formal position that women find themselves in, or is that sort of an assumed position just because they're the ones more likely to take on that that responsibility? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, quite frankly. You often see women just automatically sort of land in a support role in meetings, for example. You'll start to see they're just taking their own notes, and it's an assumption that they'll just provide the notes to the to the group, whether or not they are the leading that conversation or whether or not they've been assigned to that conversation. I've had that experience myself. You know, so there's some of that. And some of that is, you know, you know, going back to my original comment about sustainability officers, the early days of sustainability directors and managers and coordinators, because you know, women naturally stepped into those because in my case, it was a, a, a passion for problem solving and a passion for, you know, having a, a, a huge impact on the world. 
I, you know, I can't speak for other people because I think it's everyone's got a different reason of why they do this work. But our skills were sort of well positioned to do these roles, you know, the, as the skill as a facilitator. So in some cases, I would say that it's a, it's intentional. In some cases, I would say that it, it sort of is assumed, depending on the situation. So aside from the roles that you've noticed men and women filling in the workplace, what can you say about interactions between different genders in the workplace, things that you've seen or experienced? I've been and I've had colleagues that have been criticized for being overly emotional in the workplace or too reactionary. We've been dubbed hysterical or you know just just emotional. Um, and yet at the same time, I've seen those, those same men who have made those comments throw their temper tantrums. And I think it's really interesting that there's this gap of understanding or, or this, maybe it's a lack of mirroring or of or really sort of, you know, stepping outside of yourself and observing the situation. But there's this tendency to just make an assumption that women are more emotional when the reality is, is that I've seen just as much you know, temper tantrum style behavior from men and senior men in the workplace. That's pretty interesting. And, you know, I, I've also been criticized a little bit personally uh, with, you know, I'm, I'm six foot tall. I've got really wide German shoulders. Um, and one of the things I've experienced in the workplace is I've been criticized for not being more feminine. I actually had a former supervisor that counseled me that I shouldn't stand in doorways because my body size scares people and they feel trapped and that I should wear pastels and, you know, maybe try to, you know, make myself look smaller by adjusting my body language. And, and it's interesting as on reflection, I've reflected on that quite a bit through my career, you know, looking back, I could have actually filed a complaint against that. And you would never ever tell a man that why is it that it's, you know, okay to tell a woman that they, she needs to be more feminine or that she needs to make herself look appear smaller or not stand in doorways? Why is it that women are immediately tagged as being emotional or irrational? Um, you know, these are, these are questions that we need to, we still, surprisingly, for all the advancements that we've made, don't have an answer to. Um, and we need to, to continue to raise awareness about this. And I, I think, you know, tied to that is a challenge. Some men in this group they were raised in an area, they have little, they have colloquialisms that are in today's world could be viewed as inappropriate if they're taken out of context. And these are good people doing good work. And, you know, I'm, I sort of struggle sometimes with how do I help them raise awareness about potential damage to their reputation and their work and without making it look like I'm being reactionary or sensitive or too politically correct because it, you know in this case you know we have a couple of people in leadership that say things that are they're they're things that I never would have you know given a, a second thought to maybe ten years ago but now I'm very aware that it's inappropriate and if a student happens to hear it and pulls out of context or or someone else that it could actually really distract everyone inappropriately and so on the flip side is I struggle with that challenge as well of you know how do I counsel or advise some of the the men that I work with to be more aware of what they're saying in a way that doesn't just put me in sort of a feminist Nazi or, 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 uh, you know, put me into a category, slot me into a category that, that shuts down that, that, that 
communication. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you make about the colloquialisms because there are so many like inappropriate sayings that are baked into our culture. And I think things are improving, but it's a slow transition for sure. So it's interesting. Someone just posted an article about how what we saw in media and TV and movies in the 80s is grossly inappropriate and no one none of us thought it was was so so if you think about where in in movies like uh, the movies like working girl you know how she how what she had to deal with in that movie of interacting with men or you know 16 candles or any of these things where these movies where it was men were more aggressive with women and it was accepted as just funny or or just the norm and that, that, that that's changing now. There it is. It's a uh, relaxed ladies. Don't be so uptight. You know, you want it. It's the article. Um, and, and, you know, you hear that a lot, you know, it, it's, you don't hear that so much anymore, but in my early days, I did hear about that. And I had to, I had to manage up on some, some of my, my supervisors, some very good people, some mentors and people I, you know, and I had to tactfully sort of say that, you know, certain phrases or certain saying I'm uptight was not appropriate. <laughs> you know, that it was actually perpetuating a, a, a gender stereotype that was inappropriate in the workplace, well, pretty much anywhere. Well, um, another question I have for you is about um, advancement and how the experience of moving up the ladder compares for different genders. So um, I guess, have you noticed any challenges there? I think the other challenge that we face is that particularly if you go into a, a boardroom, oftentimes, I mean, it's really rare, it's starting to see a shift, but a boardroom, whether it's higher ed or whether it's a corporate or nonprofit, it's, it's older white men in those boardrooms. And they've gotten there because they've had the support, the administrative support and the facilitation support behind them, which has been predominantly women. And so I think it's interesting that there's this sense that you can't advance you know, it's always been white men. And so we're slow in getting into that boardroom. But I think that that's such another challenge that we face as well, is moving into that boardroom, proving our value in these leadership positions. And it's changing, but it's slow to change. I participate in an informal national women's higher ed sustainability group. And, and one of the things we've talked about, too, is that oftentimes expertise or you know, a pedigree, if you will, or a, a, uh, a celebrity status that will get you into these, these higher level positions comes from publishing. And then the publishing gets you into speaking engagements and that gets you into these higher positions. Um, and I think that because women play this facilitation role, you know, fewer women are publishing um, and that's having an impact on our ability to advance. Do you mean, um, Publishing articles, publishing books, articles, books. Yes, you know some of the men that I see that are they're very successful in you know in the in the sustainability work. They've gotten there because they've published, and actually in some cases they haven't published. They've edited. They, they haven't written. They've edited a book, um, and so it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge. And so you know we talk a little bit about how do we support each other in you know setting some targets or goals and achieving those goals. You know how do we leverage each other's strengths. You know, this group got together originally because, you know, it was the thinking that men get together in golf and they sort of kind of help themselves advance, help each other advance that way, you know, through conversations and, 
and and positions and, and opportunities. And so the idea was that, you know, women tend to compete a little bit because we're all trying to fight our way up to the to the top. And so women need to stop competing as much with each other and start supporting each other. And so that's what this group is about. Well, we've had some of our fem- membership in the last couple of months have some opportunities offered to them that they've brought back to the group to discuss. And it's interesting that some of the conversations that have been had about should I take this position or whatnot have been centered around, I'll never see my child or I'll have less time with my child or I won't be as strong for my family or, you know, and it's it's surprising. Um, or, you know, one of the comments that was made was I don't, I'm afraid I'll have to work so hard when many men at the levels that these women are at have support staff, administrative staff, so that they can focus their efforts or times on um, really strategic, productive work instead of, you know, calendaring, which is important. But if you've got someone who's in a senior position, ideally, it's because they're there because they've they've got some additional skills around organizational strategy building or stakeholder management that you want to, to leverage. So um, speaking of making it into the boardroom, do you think publishing is the main access point or what are some other good means of advancement? Well, I think that one sense is, you know, how do you get to the boardroom? You get to the boardroom because of your um, experience and your notoriety, you know, and I mean, I'm using notoriety in a, in a good way at this point, you know, of, of either something you've accomplished or something, a message you're, you're delivering or expertise that you have in a topic. But how do you get noticed? You know, that's the question. And sometimes you get noticed through mentorship. You know, and, and I, I try to do my, my fair share of mentoring now because when I was at my first job in higher ed at Arizona State University, I had someone, in this case, he was a man, who saw value in me and took an interest in advancing, has seen me advance just from the pure value of seeing me advance and, and do great work. And the, the agreement was, the unstated agreement was that I'd pay it forward. And so so that's something that mentorship plays a key role, but it's important to find a mentor that has that vision and interest, you know, that, that they're not looking at it in their own self-interest, except that his satisfaction of seeing his input on people show results. But, you know, that's that's the important thing of finding a good mentor. Um, I also think that it's important to have, in, in addition to sort of finding a good mentor, find typically programs are set up strictly for more experienced people to mentor inexperienced people. The reality is, is that experienced people need ongoing mentorship as well. And so that's where peer-to-peer mentorship comes in. And that's where, like, for example, this conversation I have with this group of women nationally comes in. We can bounce ideas off each other, give a different perspective. I, I give some really differing perspectives to you know, the women that were looking at these opportunities when they spoke about them. You know, including, you know, you need to be more persistent about, you know, what sort of resources are required for you, for you to take on this role, um, because that's certainly a man would <laughs> I have no problem saying that. And serving on boards, you know, trying to be more active. Now, the challenge there is if you're active in these nonprofit organizations or these advocacy organizations, you know, you have to be careful. And unfortunately, we have to be careful. You can be dubbed as, you know, hysterical if you choose the wrong organization because it's too too on the fringe, or you can be, you can just fall into a role of having to, you know, being more of a supporter than a vocal person. And so I think it's thinking about how do we continue to help each other, you know, advance. Um, 
What is some advice that you would give for improving interactions in the workplace, for improving communications? Um, but some advice that I give is is really, you know, sometimes I think that we don't know how to take criticism or critique, and we also don't know how to deliver it. So I think that everyone needs to learn how people need to learn how to a deliver feedback. I think that's a lost art, um, but we also need to learn how to take feedback. You know, I was just speaking to someone here on my campus yesterday, and he was talking about how he was having some challenges with in the workplace and, and whatnot. And he finally decided to take a step back and look at himself from the outside in. And he realized also he had some responsibility of changing his body language and his communication style and the language he was using. And that as a result of doing that, not only did it sort of sort of transform his interactions with his supervisors, but also transformed his relationship with his family and his friends. You know, we can send women through all sorts of communications trainings, but if we don't get everyone through those cha- trainings, it's a problem. <laughs> um, you know, we will always, there'll always be this divide about being touchy-feely or whatnot. I got to, you know, I realized that this, this interview really should be about, you know, women and the workplace and gender. But at the same time, I think that, that we, how do we get everyone uh, sort of become more aware of this? Because we all need to be aware of our behavior and our reactions and our, and our actions and that that will help resolve some of the what we're seeing you know the other sort of piece of this and again to stray away from strictly a gender dynamics question in the workplace we are seeing more diversity than we've ever seen before we've got a lot of cultural diversity gender sexual orientation diversity in the workplace and so how do we evolve and become you know how do we make the time to become more aware of our communication styles and, and the needs of the diversity in the workplace. And also, how do you present that in a way that isn't so touchy-feely that it turns off half the workplace? <laughs> so um, I guess to wrap up here, speaking of improving feedback and becoming more aware of different communication styles, how can we put that into practice, like you say, without becoming too touchy-feely to where it would turn off some people in the workplace? Here at my university, they required all personnel from manager up to take 20 hours of people management training. So what often happens is is in this very fast-paced world, people are advanced and they may or may not have had the appropriate support training to help them evolve in their leadership style or in in how they, they operate. And so what this training was about was how to do that. So it was all about different topics of everything from diversity and inclusion, sexual harassment, you know, how to, to give performance reviews, how, what happens when there's, you suspect that something's going on in the workplace that isn't appropriate, you know, all this type of training. And I'll admit, all of us made quite a few jokes about it. It was a lot of time and, you know, that it felt like that some of it was a little bit insipid. But at the same time, what I've observed both in myself and in my colleagues that have taken the training is I'm seeing them, whether they know it or not, I'm seeing them be a little more intentional in some things. I think what's interesting about that is when you start to, you know, take on an approach to being more intentional in how you do things, you know, in the beginning, it can be kind of hard because if everyone's not evolving with you, it might be a little sticky, (laughs) if you will. But as people start to see the results of that shift, that maybe stress in the workplace has settled down, or that collaborations are happening between departments that hadn't been there before, 
you know, or some efficiency has been achieved that really makes life easier, saves time, resources, and is, it reduces liability, then that sort of starts to build on itself. Another past work environment, um, there was a sustainability team and an engineering team, and the sustainability team had some, some men, but also was predominantly women, and the engineering team had some women, but it was predominantly men, <laughs> okay? And we did a three-day or two-day facilitation training, and it was interesting because, first of all, the company was willing to basically shut us down for two days to do this training. Um, so it was all the engineers and the sustainability people. It was interesting because the beginning of the training, you could tell that they were they were doing it because, you know, they wanted to sort of test it and see how it worked. But there was also this sort of sense that it didn't speak to them. Um, as the training progressed and became more focused on the desired outcomes for more efficient, more productive meetings, more efficient, productive outcomes and in, in conversations and working with stakeholders, I watched them shift. And it was interesting to say, oh, I always wondered what you guys were, you sustainability people were doing with your flip charts and your markers and your post-it notes. And now I understand. And wow, it moved the conversation along a lot faster. And so, you know, it's an example of where making training, you know, certain core trainings available across the board, you know, it made those engineers, mostly men, some of them are women, more productive. It's not a gender thing. That was just a experience or skills or sector thing in terms of what is in their toolbox that they have learned through their trainings. Um, so again, I know we're off the topic of gender, but if we're going to actually increase understanding and increase an awareness in the workplace, it can't just to be about men or women. It's got to be training across the board. Right. I think that's a really important point. Well, it's been, it's been really great talking with you today, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. Thank you, Bonnie. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, we are on Twitter, at Energy Podcast, and also now on LinkedIn. Just search for Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. You can also visit our website at campusenergypodcast.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes or sending a link to a friend. As always, thanks for listening.